A group of college friends ran one of the longest, most lucrative smuggling runs in U.S. history. And pretended to be licensed marijuana patient caregivers. In reality, they trafficked tens of thousands of pounds of pot out of state to sell in the black market. They made more than $12 million during their four-year run. But the good times couldn't last. My name is Chris Walker, and for years, I've been investigating this group's rise and fall. Like how they smuggled pot through the skies from state to state. How a kingpin stashed bags of cash up in the Rockies to throw police off his trail. And how the cops turned friends and family members against one another. <laughs> All these guys are so cocky and arrogant. It's not going to a dispensary. This interstate trafficking scheme had implications for the entire country. Colorado has essentially become the black market. The black market isn't just evolving in the era of legal weed. It's thriving. Hey, everybody, brand new episode of Mike Adelic. I'm Mike Brancatelli. You're you. I'm me. Thanks for being here. It was a little bit of a delay getting new episodes out, uh, but I have been very, very active on my Patreon. I've been posting about two new bonus episodes a week. I've been, po uh, I've been posting new video episodes, and I've been posting the beta test for my patrons only, my producers uh, of this show, so to speak. The new comedy show that I've been doing, new podcast, uh, working title, Dosadelic as of now, uh, but I've been putting that up on Patreon, and that will soon be released publicly, but as for now, it's just on Patreon, as well as bonus episodes with the ungoogleable Void Denizen, the ungoogleable Michelangelo uh, on, on there, and my friend Matt. Zian, as well as uh, other guests, uh, and uh, and more and more stuff. So we're going through a little bit of an evolution here uh, at Mikeadelic. Things are changing, and uh, that was um, one of the reasons for the the delay in getting out uh, new episodes. But good thing that this episode is worth the wait. I would say. Had a great conversation with Chris Walker. Chris Walker is an award-winning freelance journalist. He's a writer based here in Denver, uh, Denver, Colorado. Of course, is there another Denver? Uh, who's special? Maybe there is. I don't know. Denver, Mississippi. Uh, <laughs> he, Chris specializes in narrative long-form reporting. His work has spanned four continents, ranging from investigative journalism to arts and culture writing. Chris's stories can be found in The Atlantic, Playboy, The Atavist, Vice, Forbes, NPR, Rock and Ice, Backpacker, The Westward, and LA Weekly, among others. And in 2020, Chris released his first narrative podcast series, The Syndicate, which peaked at number five in Apple's top show charts. And that was what you heard in the beginning of the show is the trailer for the syndicate. So go check that out. All the links are in the show notes, show description, as well as links to connect with Chris, to follow his work, his Twitter, his website, 
and uh, links to his, his writings. Uh, one of the articles that I read before our conversation was called Acid Trip, published in the Westward in 2017. Denver's Secret LSD Labs, How They Fueled the Psychedelic Revolution. Uh, and I had no idea that, uh, that this was uh, a big part of it. And Chris talks about that on the podcast. He got to talk with famous orange sunshine-making LSD chemist Tim Scully. Uh, so we get into that in the podcast. A lot of really cool stories. Chris has lived a very interesting life. And, uh, and we talked a lot about his uh, journalism and his, his interest and how he dives deep and embeds himself into these interesting and unique subcultures in order to extract some gold to bring back and share with us in his writings. And, uh, and man, he's got some, some, good, some good, good stories that he shared on this podcast. So please check out all of his stuff. I hope you guys enjoy this show. Before we get started, a little, um, you know, stuff that we have to do to keep the lights on over here. I can't tell you how much I love sheath underwear. Uh, I really, really, really enjoy not only their products, but their customer service, their team. Uh, Bobby is a good friend of mine, the owner, and he just he's just a podcast fan. He gets it. Sheath underwear is just the most comfortable pair of underwear. I would be talking about them even if they weren't supporting me uh, because they're just so good. And it's uh, if you're like me, you try and find a pair of really good and comfortable underwear that you can wear just in all walks of, of your life. Like whether you're just relaxing or you're hanging out or you're going for a walk, you're going for a hike, whether you're exercising, they are multi-use in that way because they're so damn comfortable. Uh, and they don't squeeze you like some of those Under Armour underwear with the spandexy kind of feel. The sheath doesn't squeeze you; it supports you. It's made from uh, moisture wicking fabric, really, really soft. I love their Flower of Life print. It's really, really cool. It looks good, and they have the unique dual pouch technology that separates your man parts from getting all you know, jumbled up down there and, and everything. And that pouch, that pouch is big. So if you got big balls or if you just have, you know, big uh, items that you need to store for some reason, like a kangaroo, you could put it right in that pouch. It's a multi-purpose pouch. And they have uh, a little hole that you put your, your, uh, your piece through and, and uh, easy to go to the bathroom, easy, you know, just really comfortable, really easy. You could breathe easy in these and um i really really love them and i just think that they're doing something really really unique so check them out if you wear underwear you should be wearing sheath underwear uh they make thing they make underwear for men and women they also have really really comfortable shirts i love their shirts their sheath shirt that they sent me is one of my favorite shirts to wear it's super comfortable made of bamboo and you're like how do they get bamboo to be that soft i don't know that's stuff that they know they know how to put it together. They know how to make the stuff. They know how to deliver it in an awesome, stylish, and highly functional, multi-purpose way. Sheath underwear is by far the best. You see them everywhere. You hear them everywhere. And there's a reason because they've been sending their products out to people like me, podcasters, and other people, and we've been wearing them and trying them. And it's like, hey, it's really, really easy to talk about. It's really easy to promote. So it's a win-win-win. You know, I win, you win, and they win all together. We're helping each other, community everybody's getting something out of it and uh, you get 20% off. So 20% off at sheathunderwear.com. Put in the promo code Mikeadelic. 
That's Mikeadelic for 20% off. Go to sheathunderwear.com. Get the most comfortable underwear and shirts and sports bras, all kinds of gear over at sheath.com. They're also making neck gaiters, masks. So check that out. They're a really cool company. I want to support these guys as much as possible. And they really love the podcast and, and they love supporting me. So let's show them some love back. Get some underwear. Try it on. Try sheath underwear. Put in the promo code Mikeadelic. If you don't like it, you can you know come throw eggs at my house. I'll give you my address. Uh, but you're going to love it. Sheath underwear is the best. And I'm telling you, for people that listen to this show, you know, once festival season concerts come back on, once places are open, you're going to want a pair of sheath underwear. And uh, if you're smart, you're going to know why you're going to want a pair of that sheath underwear. Dual pouch in the underwear, dual pouch, moisture wicking fabric, dance all day and night, and, uh, you know, put your, uh, put, your, put your parts in the pouch. Sheathunderwear.com, promo code Mikeadelic, check it out. Also, a big shout out to the Mushroom Revival, Mushroom Revival. Get 15% off all their mushroom products. Enter the code Mikeadelic at checkout. And they have things like lion's mane, tinctures, and reishi, and chaga, and uh, just all kinds of really good stuff. Their cordyceps. I'm a big fan of their cordyceps. And uh, they're just a really cool company, really putting together some really high impact, really good quality mushroom products. So check out Mushroom Revival. Get 15% off all the mushroom products. Enter the code Mikeadelic at checkout. Now, Support the show. If you like the show, please just do what you do when you like things. Tell people about it. Share it. Um, you know, Join the Patreon. You can support for as little as a dollar a month. And at $5 a month, you get access to uh, bonus episodes, the private Inner Sanctum Discord server. We're really trying to build community here. We're trying to get people on board to uh, talk about the things that they care about that we talk about on this show together with each other. So uh, you're going to want to check that out. Go to patreon.com slash Mike Brank and, uh, and consider becoming a patron of the podcast. If you uh, don't have a little extra scratch laying around, if you don't have any Federal Reserve notes that are just burning holes in your pockets, another way to support the show is just leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the algorithm, helps build the show up to higher rankings so more people can see it. Really appreciate all the love and support that you guys have shown. And uh, without further ado, let's get into this podcast with journalist, writer, cyclist, podcaster, host of the Syndicate podcast, Chris Walker. Psychedelics are illegal, not because a loving government is concerned that you may jump out of a third-story window. Psychedelics are illegal because they dissolve opinion structures and culturally laid down models of behavior and information processing. They open to us the possibility that everything we know is wrong. We don't need new laws that control our consciousness and rigidly place it in a prison. Cognitive liberty. The fact that as adults, if we're not hurting anybody else, we should have the right to explore the contours of our own consciousness without any mediation or legislation on the part of somebody else. Reject authority. Authority is a lie. Information is power, but we have to seize, seize the opportunity. The opportunity. The opportunity.
what's up everybody chris walker's here we're talking with him today uh and uh yeah so chris tell me uh tell me a little bit about uh how you first got started in uh, the field of journalism what what brought that if you could remember maybe a further back memory of what really sparked your interest in in getting into this kind of work yeah you were asking too if even as a kid i was interested in meeting curious people and abnormal people and and had a penchant for i guess journalism at a young age um the short answer is no because i didn't really understand the concept of magazine journalism or really digging into subcultures but i was into subcultures so i grew up in a suburb of los angeles which was itself kind of a bedroom community pretty boring but my parents were um, really great and kind of as long as I you know kept up my grades and um, upheld all the responsibilities that I had around the house they would cut me loose to go explore Los Angeles which is just like an endless playground of subcultures so pretty early on the one that I latched on to was music and going to all these small venues and checking out these up-and-coming bands and as a adolescent for me, it just felt like I was part of something much more profound than Los Angeles suburbia could could offer. Um, and so later on, this is jumping forward a lot, but once I went to college, I wanted to remain in the music community and was doing um, a lot of, I was doing production myself, helping bands put together albums, uh, was really interested in live concert promotion. So I studied communications you know, which is like kind of a joke of a major for a lot of people. It's like what the athletes take because <laughs> they can get easy A's. Um, but the, the college I went to, UCLA, had a really great music business program. Um, so I was pursuing that and coincidentally took a couple journalism classes because they were within the same umbrella of communications. Um, but it wasn't really until after college that I latched on to journalism. So what happened was right around the time I was graduating, I was applying for jobs in the music industry and even had an offer to work at a, a company, one company that later got bought by AEG and helps put on Coachella. And um, right then, one of my more adventurous friends um, who has this really bohemian family and was also kind of, his family was kind of a introduction to the wider world for me growing up. He calls me out of the blue one day and says, Chris, I've got this idea. I want to bike around the world and I think you're the only bastard who's crazy enough to do it with me. Um, and I was like, Hey, Morgan, good to hear from you too. Like slow down a little bit. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, and so my friend like hatched this crazy idea, this crazy plan to ride our bicycles halfway around the world, document all these subcultures as just like a means of exploration and, um, you know, just going on a completely like harebrained adventure. And I realized at that moment that, um, you know, there was no rush to really go from college into kind of a more corporate atmosphere. The jobs that I was looking at were also in Los Angeles. And so 
I kind of stopped in my tracks and said, well, this is an opportunity to just experience a lot more, to get outside this one slice of Americana that I know, Southern California, and really find out more about myself in the world. And so we, uh, we raised what money we could from, you know, emptied our bank accounts, like asked for five, 10, $15 from everyone we knew to help fund this adventure and set off. And so it was for two years, I rode my bicycle from Paris, France to Shanghai, China. And along the way, we started off writing a lot about ourselves, which I feel like is also kind of a facet of American college culture, especially, you know, writing about yourself, your travels, but more and more as writing about the people that we were meeting, which I found far more fascinating than writing about myself and, you know, complaining about the sores I was getting on my butt from riding the bike every day. And more and more my attention turned outwards to other people, people's couches we were staying on, communities that we were encountering, what was going on in their communities. And about five months into our trip, we both made the collective brilliant realization that like, oh, like writing about other people and their communities and what, you know, is happening there. Isn't that like journalism? <laughs> so then we really latched on to that. And um, both Morgan and I are really into narrative storytelling and like adventure books, John Krakauer, that kind of stuff. So we really wanted to write magazine style feature stories. And so we just started reading the masters, everyone from Michael Lewis to Joan Didion, figuring out, okay, how did they structure their pieces? How did they, um, you know, jump between a intimate scene with dialogue between characters and then zoom out to talk about the bigger picture implications of the story? How do they outline and weave their narrative? And we just started finding our own stories as we were biking across Eurasia. Um, we wrote about this, this town's fight against a multinational corporation that wanted to build a coal plant in their town in Turkey. We happened across this crazy story of um, an Armenian climber stuck on top of a, a mountain in um, the country of Georgia, which is south of Russia. We uh, dug into this feature story about child boxing and gambling in Thailand. And little did we know it, because I you know, don't really give too much credit to us, but it turns out that um, <laughs> submitting stories from the middle of nowhere, where there are no other English language reporters, and oftentimes not even people who speak English, um, is a pretty good way to break into the magazine industry because even though we were complete nobodies, we didn't have any connections, we would email editors at The Atlantic and Forbes and I mean like some of our early pitches, I like sh would probably shudder if I went back and looked at them now. Um, but, you know, we were like emailing, e emailing the New Yorker and stuff like that. Um, but we, sl we slowly started getting assignments because editors would be like, I have no idea who the fuck you guys are, 
but like, wait a minute, you're where and what is happening there? And so that's how we slowly started getting into these magazines and developing a real skill set for this type of storytelling. Um, and then to fast forward after this trip, uh, upon returning stateside, one of the outlets or one of, one of the great places to really develop a skill set um, around this type of storytelling and still runs these stories regularly are alt-weeklies. So Denver has a great alt-weekly where I ended up working for three and a half years called Westward. Um, the first in the country was the Village Voice RIP in New York City. Um, and I realize I'm jumping around here, but I actually worked for LA, LA Weekly for a year um, when I first got back and then came out to Colorado and worked for Westward for three and a half years. Um, and yeah, I was always on the lookout for, you know, just really unique, underexplored subcultures that I could bring to light through these stories, obsessive and fascinating characters who I can meet and try to understand what makes them tick and why they were such a mover and shaker in whatever field they were in. And um, it was a blast. Um, so I, you know, I did 36 cover stories, these types of stories at Westward. Um, and now I am on to podcasting. So I realize that's a very long answer to your question, but um, if you want to yeah. poke around in any part of that timeline, go ahead. Yeah, so much. Um, yeah, thanks. That's that's amazing. It was so. It's really like this this sort of you know music and people that are making you know amazing sounds that you enjoy and 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 how do they do that and what's their story and and then like this call to adventure and and being in foreign lands and unknown uncharted territories for you and your friend and 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 discovering that um, and and then you know the 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 submitting those things like you're saying shutter shuddering at some of these pitches like what what did those look like how does that happen you just send an email hey we got a great story and we're two guys on this bike trip and what do you think pretty much um <laughs> i mean first the first challenge was trying to figure out like how to reach these people so you know like we would a lot of times we would kind of like guess and figure out the email format for various magazines so mm -hmm. it's like oh it's uh you know first name underscore last name at newyorker.com and then just like punch in the correct name um and then it, you know if that like had a uh if that like was a mailer demon or like failed to send then you would like try a different format um right. yeah, yeah the way that a pitch works um is it's kind of like a business plan for a magazine story. So, I mean, we weren't as adept at it um, back then, but you kind of want like a two sentence hook. Um, maybe even it's like something that someone said, and then it's explaining what the story is, why you're the people to do it, uh, why you're in a unique position to do it, why it's important. Um, with, with stories from abroad, one of the challenges is always like, why are American readers going to give a shit about this story? <laughs> right. so, so, so sometimes you have to frame it in ways that um, are more intuitive to an American audience. So like one example is um, we were 
again in the country of Georgia. And there'd been a change in their presidential administration. And the new administration found like all of this uh, illegal surveillance that the last administration had done on journalists, on activists, um, on like the LGBT community there. Um, and this was right around the time that the Snowden revelations were coming out. So, I mean, yeah, it's even with like the shocking details of like, you know, like there were the cameras set up in sleazy hotels where they were like catching um, opponents of the government and like journalists having sex and like using it as blackmail, like that kind of stuff. Um, so we framed it and, and eventually got the story placed by pitching it as like, hey, you know, we're learning a lot of scary stuff about the NSA through these Snowden revelations. But in Georgia, there's like this recent discovery of the surveillance program that looks like the NSA on steroids. Mm. And then so, yeah, you kind of figure out tricks to, to get editors and magazines interested and readers. Ultimately, I mean, um, that's that's who you're writing for. Right, right. Yeah, writing for the for the readers. Um, and uh, sometimes uh, publications may not want to publish certain things. Um, you know, if they, like you were saying with these Snowden revelations, that was a big deal. I remember, what was that, 2013 or something like that? 2000, maybe it was even earlier than that. Yeah, maybe it might have been yeah. 11. But yeah, that, that's uh, interesting um, that you bring that, that, that up because even more so with every year to follow that there's sort of been this i don't know if i want to say like an attack on it on journalists but it's been kind of tough for journalists to get certain kinds of stories out i mean what is your experience uh, in that uh, uh, in the in the world of um you know trying to expose something that um you feel that maybe people should know about um mm -hmm. and and the, and the sort of maybe pushback that one would get from some larger organizations or, or other types of media outlets that might not want to go there. Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of challenges um, on the, on the editor and magazine side. Um, the challenge is always like if, even if you have a really great story about love, loss, adventure in the mountains, but you're in the middle of a pandemic you know, there are race protests going on. Um, there's like all sorts of turmoil in Washington. Um, a lot of times much like bigger news and things that need immediate attention can crowd out um, less topical stories. Um, so, I mean, I've run into this in the past where, you know, even after getting assignments, um, it just takes, you know, your editors will call it an evergreen story. You know, if it can run any time and isn't pegged necessarily to like what's happening right now. And if there's a lot happening right now, your story can get pushed down and down and down and down the road um, or just not get assigned. So, I mean, I know people running into that problem right now. Um, on the reader side, I mean, yeah, it's a unprecedented time to be a journalist right now. We've never seen I mean, especially from the top down and, um, you know, from this administration that we're thankfully moving on from, we've never seen more attacks on the credibility of journalists and also just like 
the basics of like a fact-based reality. <laughs> I mean, like the the that that we even have a term alternative facts that seem to like have taken root um, is just like an incredible development in not not just American journalism, but also just like these basic tenets that we've held on to since the Enlightenment and like the age of reason and science. Um, and we're not out of it yet. I mean, the damage that we've seen in the last four years against um, fact-based reporting, I, I don't know if we fully recover from it and if we do recover, how long that will take. Yeah. Yeah, and it's easier, it's easier than ever now to start your own thing and develop a, a following if, if you're compelling and engaging. And like you said, you know, I mean, for example, me with this show, I'm not a journalist, but I'll express opinions on here. I'll talk about things that, you know, who, who I don't, I don't have fact checkers. I, I don't have a young Jamie, you know, <laughs> next to me. Um, <laughs> so I'm probably getting a lot of stuff wrong sometimes, you know, um, but there's no one really like holding me accountable other than the listeners. Right. So, uh, what what has your experience been throughout the years that you've been doing this as you see more and more blogs and um, uh, independent news outlets and podcasts uh, popping up? Uh, do, you, do you think that that sort of makes it a little bit more difficult for the the fact-based journalism to seep through the cracks in, 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 you know, in the sense that maybe some more conspiratorial or alluring seductive type narratives are, are sinking their hooks into people. One that comes to mind is this like QAnon type mm. group of people, you know, and it's like, well, where's this, where's this coming from? This is coming from 4chan or Reddit or this place or that place. And you know, what is it? It's not news. It's what's, what's, what's going on here. It's just, uh, you know, we have, now we have this ability that really anybody can just come on and say anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so what's happening now is that they're like less and less reporting or sorry, more and more reporting is being done by less, fewer outlets. Um, so cable news, for instance, which is just like the worst place to get your information. Most cable, like across the board, cable news channels only do about 30%, I read this somewhere, about 30% of their own original reporting. All the rest is done by newspapers, by local newspapers, by big you know, national newspapers like the Times and the Post and the Wall Street Journal. And 70% of the content on cable news is just them talking about the actual reporting that a, you know, a reporter went out in the field and got this information or like dug through documents and found this or got information through open records requests, argued with the government. Um, and so blogs are generally the same way. You know, it's mostly opinion or it's um, a, an act of collecting news items for analysis, which can be really helpful. I think what we've seen in the last four years, though, is that, um, you know, prior to that, there was kind of an understanding that there were these thick in the mud journalists going out to get this information. Um, but we've seen an attack on the very institutions that are finding this information now. 
you know, fake news, the failing New York Times, fake news, New York Times. Well, the New York Times, you know, is actually a place that will issue corrections, has fact checkers, and is the place that is getting a lot of this information that everyone else is only talking about. But now that we're doubting the very source of fact, um, then fact can come from anywhere, including out of people's asses like QAnon. Um, so I, th that's kind of what I was referencing earlier is like, we have a lot of recovery to do, and I'm not sure how that happens and how long it takes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're working on, uh, well, I don't, I actually don't know what you're currently working on. And maybe I'll, I'll ask you that, uh, after I ask you this is, uh, you're, you're more interested in this narrative storytelling, right? And like you were talking about how it can be kind of difficult to get that through when there's this big stuff, you know, ha happening. Um, but you, ha you have gotten some some amazing things through, and uh, one of them was uh, the Westward article that I looked at, which was uh, fascinating, uh, about the um, uh, Denver's secret LSD uh, LSD labs, and and then the the Syndicate podcast that you do, which is this uh, sort of um, a newer uh, expedition, I, I would say, I guess, or a newer journey for you for it, from written word into the spoken word and that narrative storytelling. And that focuses on uh, cannabis and, you know, drug smuggling. And, um, you know, so w with, you know, saying that it's like, th these are definitely things that I'm interested in. And I know that my listeners are interested in. Um, yeah. What, what really uh, tickled your interest in going down those uh, areas? I think for me, it always starts with personal interest. So the LSD story, for instance, which um, I had the for I had the uh, the fortune to to really fill in two years of psychedelics history from 1967 to 1969 where there hadn't been a ton of reporting before and a lot of the details I was able to, to flesh out weren't previously known. Um, I'm just personally interested in, in psychedelics. It's also having a real cultural moment, as you know, right now, everything from microdosing to um, decriminalization of psilocybin. Um, and so I happened to be reading and this is back in 2017, I was reading a, a really classic book, Tom Wolfe's The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, which is great, highly recommend it, hugely entertaining. Um, it's all about the Merry Pranksters in the Bay Area of California and um, the dawn of the psychedelic revolution. Ken Kesey, who wrote um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, was a, a main participant in this. Um, as was, um, like Allen Ginsberg and all these other folks. Um, so, <laughs> uh, so in, in the course of the book, um, the great, so they're also like involved in the scene were the Grateful Dead and they had this really, uh, kind of boisterous, charismatic soundman named Owsley Stanley. Um, and he was one of the original LSD manufacturers who actually like went through some of the old patents that were filed with the U.S. government and parsed between the lines to figure out how to manufacture LSD. Um, so I was just kind of reading up more about him online. And I saw this one reference 
to him moving his labs to Denver. And so at this time, I'm working for Westward in Denver. So, um, you know, everything I write there has to have at least some Denver connection. So I was like, at Denver, my ears immediately perk up because it's like, oh, wow, I didn't know that there was actually LSD production happening in Denver um, by Stanley. Yeah, uh, that's big. Stumbled across a gem there. Yeah. Well, so like with all these types of stories, the first thing you do is like Google some search terms to see what else is out there. Has this already been done? And I quickly figured out that, you know, there was maybe a couple other lines in various articles or blog entries about the production moving to Denver, but there was nothing else. Um, so that's when I realized like, oh, okay, there's definitely a story here. Like, how did it move to Denver? What happened during those two years? How did they evade authorities for that long? How much acid did they make? You know, all these questions that I want to know. Um, but how do you tell the story? So I saw another reference to um, Stanley's protege, who was a chemist by the name of Tim Scully. And so, you know, I, I saw that Stanley had, was, had long since passed. Um, but then I started looking up Scully and saw that he was still alive. So it's like, okay, now let's see if I can find this guy and if he'll talk to me. So I like scoured the internet and finally saw a reference to him being on like a volunteer board at an airfield in Mendocino, California. And so I actually called up the airfield and asked for him. And, you know, this voice comes on the phone. I'm like, is this Tim Scully? He's like, yeah. Is this the Tim Scully that like made millions of hits with acid? <laughs> um, and was one of the creators of Orange Sunshine? Yeah. Um, and so I, I actually had the right person on the phone. Um, and he agreed to tell the story. He actually had, we kind of came up with a bargain. He, he's, I guess, still working on a memoir. Um, and he was missing some court documents that he needed to tell the story. So our, our agreement was that he would fill me in on everything that had happened from, you know, 1967 to 69 when there were two Denver acid labs uh, running um, in return for like finding these court documents at the state archives um, and also the city archives in Denver. Um, so yeah, it was fascinating. He, he himself says that he, is probably somewhere on the Asperger's spectrum. Um, he's extremely methodical. Uh, I mean, it was like having all the reporting handed to me on a platter. You know, he had, he had this own internal Wikipedia that he had made of, you know, all of these different references and people in his past that he was kind of creating as a web to write this memoir. So he sent me a lot of those documents and then our interviews themselves were, were fascinating. I mean, I, uh, you know, we started off as you do just at the beginning of, you know, in, like the chronology of, of like when he first tried acid and decided to get into producing acid and learning the tricks of its chemistry. And he would, he would basically just like methodically go through the whole story. I like would never have a chance to ask a single question. And 
exactly like an hour and a half after our call started every single time he would be like, well, I think that's it for the day. And uh, so, you know, remind me where we were next time we pick up, like pick, pick this up. And how about we talk again, like, you know, Thursday at three o'clock. So then Thursday at three o'clock, I would call him. I'd remind him like exactly where we left off. And then he would just talk for another hour and a half, you know, going from like May 1967 to September 1967. Um, And then at the end, I did get to ask him a lot of questions, but I did five interviews like that where he just talked for exactly an hour and a half, um, like missing no little detail. He had like an encyclopedic memory of everything that had happened so it was it was a really kind of strange and also delightful reporting experience for me wow yeah that's amazing that you you know you get to really interact with all of these different characters you know and and Mm -hmm. and uh, yeah that's i i don't want to assume that that sounds like a very i mean a very exciting experience and story um what has been what has been for you the most exciting story or the most exciting person that you've, that you've had a chance to pick their brain? Hmm. Probably the story that I'm most proud of and just took the most twists and turns um, actually came from my grandmother. And so she has lived in this kind of small bohemian enclave in Mexico since the late 60s. And I I mean, actually connecting back to the Grateful Dead and the Merry Pranksters, it used to be a favorite stopover of like Neil Cassidy and Ken Kesey. It's called Ajijic. um, And it's by this little lakeside in Mexico. And she's Timothy Leary actually ran an LSD commune there for one year. Um, So there's a lot of psychedelic history there too. Uh, my grandmother claims to have not partaken, but um, that's aside from the fact uh, that she has just like known all of these just completely over the top characters over the years. Um, so I asked her one time, you know, hey, like, what are some of the craziest things that have ever happened in this town? And she told me the story of this um, seductress who moved to town and she would like find ailing rich old men, um, you know, become a housekeeper there. And then the men would mysteriously die. And then in two instances, you know, my grandmother is a teller of tall tales. So half this, like, as she's telling this, I'm kind of very skeptical and rolling my eyes at certain details. Uh, So, she would kill off the old men, get the inheritance, seduce the wives, um, you know, and become like partners with the wives. And she did this multiple times. And then she said, you know, she tried this again in the eighties and it all went South. And like the husband was onto her before, um, you know, she could do anything about it. And the husband, the husband, like, at this fateful dinner party, like decapitates the, the lesbian seductress and then flees Mexico and is never caught. Um, so there's a lot there. <laughs> and so I kind of filed it, you know, in, into the back of my mind, like, all right, well, if even 10% of that is true, that is fucking nuts. Yeah. Um, 
And also like, how did that happen? And so uh, in 2018, I started poking around this and I found the daughters of the, um, of the husband who allegedly killed this woman and fled Mexico and got away with it. And, um, you know, I, it's always kind of weird calling someone out of the blue, um, but I located his daughters um, in Phoenix, Arizona, and I called them and just got them interested enough to allow me to fly down there to meet them because I knew this would be a very sensitive story if, uh, you know, these allegations of what their dad did. <laughs> right. You didn't call like, it wasn't like the Scully phone call where you were like, yeah, hey, no. are you the daughters of the guy that decapitated the... Right. Yeah. That was not the move. <laughs> right. right. Um, no, I explained that, you know, I heard this through my grandmother and she, you know, lived there for decades and um, I'm a journalist and I was interested in kind of plumbing some of the unturned stones and, you know, in this town in Mexico. Um, so I flew down to Arizona. I met with the daughters and yeah, it turns out that like their dad did do this. He was never caught. He had passed away years earlier. Um, so I never got to meet him. But like the more and more I looked into this story, like most of what my grandmother told me turned out to be true. Wow. Um, and so, but it was way, it was, you know, as what, as usually happens, like it was way more nuanced, way more complex than the way my grandmother told me um, the the seductress at the middle of this story was, was a much more complicated and tragic character than my grandmother made her out to be. So I learned a lot about her past and just how this had all unfolded. Um, and also more about just all these expats who were, you know, escaping their past. Um, you know, many, many people who ended up in this town in the sixties and seventies were, running away from mistakes that they had made or lives that were not satisfying in the United States. And then kind of starting anew in this like bohemian area in, in Mexico. Um, but yeah, I, I couldn't believe how much of the story actually I was able to uncover, including all these old newspaper um, articles that I was able to find about the murder um, and some of the stuff that happened. So, um, yeah, that, that was published in 2018, uh, for a, a narrative, um, journalism outlet called the Atavist online. Okay. Yeah. Um, wow. Wow. So, uh, uh the Atavist. Okay. So it, it is, um, and you're not at the Westward anymore right now, right? No, I left in 2019 to do podcasts. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cause that, that's what we'll move into next. Um, yeah. But, so, cause I'm not super, so the Atavist, was that a place that you were writing for or was that like a, I'm not familiar with like how that works where you just submit a story or they, they contract you out or mm -hmm. you could be working for like multiple outlets at the same time. Right. Uh, usually not. Um, yeah. This, oh, okay. So that, that was, yeah, uh, that was as a freelance story, um, okay. like a contract for just that one story. But I had a, I had an agreement with my editor at Westward that 
Um, you know, cause like I'd occasionally come across stories like this one in Mexico. There was another one where I went down to Argentina to look for this missing climber. Like I, I occasionally would come across stories that just had nothing to do with Denver or Colorado. Right. So my editor was nice enough to allow me to do one national story a year on the side of my staff job, my staff job at the paper in Denver. Right. Okay. Yeah. Cause I saw you, you also, uh, wrote for vice and for playboy and mm-hmm. just there's a lot of different places. So that's, that's how that works then where you get a little, okay. Yeah. Um, I got a little leeway there, which was nice. Nice. Okay, cool. Cool. Yeah. I want to, I want to talk about the podcast before we get, get into that. I, I mean, this, this relates to the podcast too, but it, you know, it's all about digging into these stories and uncovering these, these unturned stones, right? Um, mm-hmm. And finding out these these interesting characters. What is it for you that's that really sparks this um, this like this moment of like joy or 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 satisfaction when you're when you're un, uh, you know uncovering these stones and digging into these stories? What can you put your finger on? Like maybe what, how it feels to, to, to be diving into something that's unknown and, 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 you know, looking into it. And if there's any particular moment that arises, that's like the, um, I don't know how to, how to say it, you know, like in, in sports, maybe in baseball, when you, when you hit the ball into the meat of the bat and, you know, it's, you just really connect and it's like, Oh yeah, that was a good one. Um, (laughs) Is there, is there, are there moments like that for you that are common that you, that you feel like, oh, I know I'm onto something here that I'm, I'm getting that feeling again. Um, does that make sense? Oh, no, absolutely. And I think, yeah, hitting, having a connection with the ball, you know, right in that sweet spot with your bat is a good analogy because, um, I mean, I think a lot of the obsession and dedication and then also like hopefully resultant joy in reporting comes through the challenge of what you're trying to uncover. Um, and, and so I mentioned earlier that I like, I like exploring obsessive personalities, but to really get to the heart of a story, you almost need to become obsessive as a reporter to, to like dig that out and figure out like, what is at the center of this? Like what, like what is gelling this community together what is, you know, the aim of this harebrained plan that you've heard this person talk about? Like, what is really making them tick? What is at the heart of their quest? Um, and yeah, there, there have been some real moments like that for me. Um, I, I mentioned earlier that I, I went down to Argentina um, to look for these missing climbers and um, just real briefly what that's about is these these two climbers disappeared in 1990 and um one one of them happened to be uh a friend of um the dad of one of my high school friends which is how i found out about this and um looking into these these two missing climbers i found out that one of these guys was argentine and his brother would go look for their bodies every year on this like yearly quest and he had found other bodies. He'd found plane wreckage, like cow carcasses. He once found a hand like sticking out of the snow, but could never find his brother in the lost American. 
And so I got invited to go along on this guy's yearly quest up in the Andes mountains. Um, and at the heart of this is like that, that particular story, my question was like, okay, like what is making this guy go on this quest every year? Is it a grieving ritual? Like, is it some kind of a rational obsession? Is it even scientifically possible that he would find their bodies in any decent shape at this point? And at the very end of my reporting, I found out that the reason he goes down there or he goes from Buenos Aires to, to look in this section of the Andes for their bodies is that he and his brother, um, cause they were both mountaineers had made a pact that if they were ever close to death and didn't die suddenly, that they would write a letter to the other brother, like a last letter. And so at at the heart of why he goes every year is to he's he's not looking for his brother's body so much as he wants to know if there's a letter and what it might say. And so like when you find out that kind of detail, you're just like, that's exactly what you were describing about like, oh wow. Yeah. I just felt that I now. just like wow got to the heart of this. Yeah. Oh my God. And that was published in um that was published in Rock and Ice magazine. Rock and Ice. Yeah, I want to put these links in the in the show description too. Everything that we talk about. Um, wow, I'm wondering. You know, throughout your journalism career and 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 these characters and these stories and uncovering these pieces, do you ever see sort of a reflection in in the people that you're investigating in yourself? I know you kind of alluded a little bit to like these obsessive characters, and then you have to kind of become one a little bit in the in the process mm-hmm. and yeah i'm wondering like how yeah how, when you're when you're when you're sort of for lack of a better term like getting in bed with with these people like do you notice maybe like oh wow like i'm finding out something about myself here too totally yeah i mean i think i am drawn towards people that I see similar traits as myself. Um, I mean, even if those are traits that you're, you're not so proud of, like obsessions taken too far. Um, and I think that was, I think that was one of the things that drew me towards, um, I'm sure we'll get to this in a minute. Um, this, this story, which I explored in my podcast called the syndicate it was all about cannabis smuggling and, and some of the characters I found to be pretty relatable in terms of their um, kind of more personal and spiritual connections to cannabis. But, you know, like small time dealing turned into bigger smuggling turned into like a massive criminal organization. And over and over again, members of this group just described it as kind of like, it being the snowball effect where it like started out small and then it just got so big and completely out of control. And so it's, it's like, those are opportunities where like I, I I can relate to people, but then like, I also want to know even for my own sake, like how things can be taken too far and like maybe what lessons are, can be learned about like avoiding that potentiality. Yeah. Is there any that come to mind that are, specific uh for you um i 
I mean, not, I, I guess there's like some analogs. Like I, I've explored mountain disasters and stuff like that and rock fall accidents and ski accidents that turn into these like, you know, really sensational, but also horrendous stories um, where someone just like clearly took on too much risk. And, you know, as someone who does backcountry skiing and some of that stuff, um, I think those are always important reminders for me to know when to maybe take the foot back the foot off the accelerator a little bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So that for, for backcountry skiing, you sometimes take some risks that maybe you probably shouldn't and, you get a little reminder when you look into those stories. Yeah. When you're like looking up that slope at that cornice and you're like, uh, maybe the right thing to do right now is turn around. Mm-hmm. That's a good, yeah. Good lesson, which pertains to, I mean, who knows, right? The people in the syndicate, like this, the snowball effect, like you said, like one, one thing happens after the next. And then all of a sudden, before you know it, you're in deep water. And you're like, whoa, how do we get out here? So yeah, t- mm-hmm. talk to me a little bit about that. I'm, I'm curious, like what brought this on? Obviously, I could probably guess that it was you found out about a, a cool story and you're like, oh, I want to know more about that, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, but why take it to the podcast for? So <laughs> um, I've noticed even in the last four years that um, unfortunately, uh, while writing is my first lo- writing is my first love and always will be. Um, I mean, the internet is brutal. You can see they're like numbers don't lie and you can even see diminishing returns year after year on how many people will read written reported feature stories. Um, at the same time, like we're in the golden age or entering the golden age of podcasts and audio storytelling. Um, so I mean, much credit to This American Life and Serial for kind of breaking that open. But um, more and more people are are listening to these types of stories through podcasts, and it makes sense. You know, it's it's it involves less work than <laughs> than reading a magazine story, whether that's in print or online. Um, if you're if you're reading a story, like that's pretty much all you can be doing. But um, the, the big thing with podcasts is like there's so many commuters that are driving to work and, um, you know, they can listen to stories that way uh, or while they're at the gym working out or gardening or whatever. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So I, I wanted to see if like I could just get more more people paying attention to my stories um, and also just like want the new a, a new challenge. Um, writing a reporting and writing a magazine features a very solitary experience. Um, you do work with an editor on the piece, you know, once you've turned in your, your draft. Um, but up until that point, it's pretty much just you. Yeah. Podcasts like that tends to have a whole team. So you've got producers. Um, and then as was the case in the syndicate to get to work with a composer, you know, who wrote a original score, yeah, I mean, it's the production. It's like, it's amazing. The production value, it's like top notch. I mean, it, it, it takes you, it pulls you in, into this, into this like crafted world that like sets the tone and the stage and, and all the elements are crisp and sharp. And yeah, it's 
well done. I mean, I've only listened to one episode, but it's that one episode, <laughs> the trailer in one episode, very, very well done. Yeah, yeah just watch all the other episodes are just like complete trash. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, no, it's, no, it's not, not that way. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah it's got I like, mean, what, it's, like a thousand five star reviews or something like that on, or 950 or something I saw on uh, Apple Podcasts. Oh, yeah. I think it's around that. People are loving it. Um, yeah. It, yeah. The, the feedback has been really encouraging. And um, as I was mentioning earlier, it turns out that um, a lot more people <laughs> will listen to a podcast than, um, than will click on many magazine stories. Occasionally, some go super viral online, which is great. Um, yeah. But, so is that a little like disappointing for you or I, I noticed like a little tone and like, a, like, Oh, you know, unfortunately people aren't reading anymore and you know, they they want to listen to these produced things. Like is, I, I mean, I, I get a sense that there's this exciting new realm, right. With this awesomely sleek, like uh, produced, well-produced, polished narrative storytelling podcast. And that's exciting, but there's also sort of maybe, I don't know. How do you feel about like, are you writing anymore? Are you just going to work on the podcast now? How do you feel about this sort of transition, the industry yourself in relation to it? I am still writing. Um, although I'm doing more work on podcasts at the moment. Um, yeah, I think the, the reason why there's a little wistfulness in my voice is that it's just, it's a different art form. Um, I mean, podcasts, if you're doing a scripted podcast like The Syndicate, um, it still involves a ton of writing. But the, the writing style is quite different. And, and that was actually even a learning curve for me going from magazine stories to podcasts. So, you, so when you're writing for podcasts, it's, you're writing in a very conversational way. Um, and you want to mimic the way that you speak and, and almost like how you would tell a story to a group of friends around a campfire. And it just ends up being a very different style of prose than, than trying to do like a polished magazine piece. Um, I, I feel like there are some good examples of podcasts that are almost like literary art forms, like S town comes to mind. The writing is just beautiful. Yeah. Um, but the, you know, the producer behind that or the reporter, Brian Reed, has been working for This American Life forever and I think has figured out a pretty good middle ground of like how to have that really friendly, like personal, intimate podcast voice and then also kind of incorporate some of the more literary high art qualities of, of like long, long form prose. Um, for me, it's, yeah, it, it like... My my writing in, in those two different categories just look very different at the moment. And so um, it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of like you employ or you flex like one muscle for doing writing for podcasts and a different muscle doing writing for magazine pieces. And um, yeah, I'd be interested in exploring like how to kind of bring those two together more. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that there was... Um, yeah, that, that must've been, that must've been a sort of challenging, I guess, right. From like going writing in this particular way for magazines and then like, Oh, okay. And now I have to write in, in, in a different way. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't, that thought never even entered my mind as something that would be, um, a part of that, but, but yeah, so, so with the syndicate, uh, this season, it's a, like a 
what, what it, limited series, right? Like, is that, is that what it would be called? The limited series podcast? Yeah, I think that's fair. Storytelling, narrative storytelling. So, so is there another series in the works? Is there anything else that you have? That you, what do you, what's going on with you right now? What are you thinking about? What are you working on? <laughs> um, well, yeah, I mean, just to jump back a little bit for those who are interested, the, the syndicate is about the rise and fall of a cannabis smuggling operation in Colorado that set up its operations after legalization in Colorado. Um, and I, I think you had asked me a little earlier about, you know, how I came across this story. And um, it was actually while I was at Westward um, in 2015, um, the state busted this group and it was you know it made a splash at the time it was the biggest uh pot bust in colorado since legalization there were 32 people involved there were friends family members they'd come from minnesota to set up this operation some had turned on each other most alluringly um, they'd use skydiving planes to traffic weed out of colorado to surrounding states especially minnesota um, and so the first question in my mind is like, wait a minute, I thought Colorado had an absolutely exploding, booming cannabis industry. So like, why would you ever take on, like when there's sky high profits to be made, like why would you ever take on so much risk starting a black market business like this? Um, and so, it, it, I mean, it turns out, and, and this is what I really explore in the series that like, a lot of people don't understand that legalization, even though every state should be doing it and we should be doing it at the federal level, is not as easy as just flipping a switch. Like there's so much entrenched business that happens in the underground economy, um, so much history. And then more importantly, um, legalization has created some new opportunities for people to earn profits in less than above board ways. Um, so this is all stuff that I found out through the course of reporting. Um, but at the time when this bust happened, you know, every news outlet in Denver, all the TV stations covered the, the press conference. Um, you know, they all had the flashy details, some of the flashy details in there. Um, but the state was also pretty tight-lipped about it. So there were 32 court cases stemming out of this. Um, this is very typical that law enforcement and investigators wouldn't really talk about the case more than they'd kind of laid out and carefully crafted press statements because they didn't want to affect the outcomes of their trials. Mm. Um, so, you know, everyone's doing the short articles, but I, even at that time, I, you know, it occurred to me like, wow, if I could ever get members of this organization to talk to me, as well as law enforcement, it would be really fascinating to know the full story about how this group actually formed, how it hit its stride, like who, like, who the people involved like, were as people, um, and then just how it all went south so spectacularly. <laughs> Um, so I, 
you know, I'm, I'm always kind of looking for these stories and just filed it away in my back pocket. I reached out to the state of Colorado and they were immediately like, yeah, it's a pretty fascinating story. No, we absolutely won't talk to you until all the court cases are wrapped up. So that took until 2019, until last year. And then finally, um, you know, and, and like at this point, every other journalist has forgotten about this story. Um, but I went to the state and said like, Hey, remember like when you said you would tell me about this, um, once the court cases were wrapped up, like I see that they're wrapped up now and they're like, okay, we're ready. And so, um, one of the things the state was sitting on that, that really opened this up for an audio format was I was able to get my hands on about a hundred hours of interrogation recordings with 20 members of the group. Um, so with that, and then starting to reach out to every group member that I could find, um, about seven or eight of whom were generous enough to go on the record with me and, and, and tell their part of the story, I, I, was, I was actually able to figure out what actually happened. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Thanks for, for bringing that back. Um, is there any possibility to like pitch this to like a movie studio or have them like pick, like pick up on this? Like, does that, is that, does, is that an interest to you or no? So the, the company that funded the podcast is actually also a film and TV company. Oh, okay. Um, (laughs) All right. So yeah, we'll see. I mean, I don't want to say too much, but there's, you know, you never know with Hollywood, but, but fingers crossed that this could also become something else besides a narrative podcast series. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Well then, uh, yeah, thanks for, for, for sharing that. I'm wondering, um, maybe if I play the trailer in the beginning of the episode. Sure. Cool. So I'll just, yeah, you guys, you guys already heard the trailer then, or maybe this is edited out and you didn't hear it. <laughs> uh, well, what about, what about with your, you know, personal, uh, experience? Um, I guess like kind of, you know, backtracking a little bit, I, I'm not, not trying to like connect cannabis and psychedelics, but I guess like, you know, even with your grandmother and the sort of like bohemian adjacent world that I feel like, you know, and your friend Morgan and these adventures, like what about your experience in the realms of altered states and consciousness and psychedelics and theogens, cannabis and, and these sorts of things? Is there, is, is there a personal connection for you? Um, not really through my family, but, um, yeah, I think uh, you can't you can't write about any of these things in a very informed way um, without having dabbled. So, I mean, I'll just kind of put it at that. Um, yeah, I mean, I've had some experiences. I think I don't know. A, a lot of times, like true stories can be they can't truly like capture what they meant for you, but. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I've, I've had some experiences and it's been profound. And I, I think that informs, um, like I said, like it's psychedelics are having a real important cultural resurgence right now that I think is going to stick. Um, and I think also that like, it's not so hard to connect cannabis to psychedelics 
Because I mean, they're, they're psychoactive substances and the fight for cannabis decriminalization and legalization was really like the spearhead for psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like even with the syndicate, um, while it's a story about pot, I mean, we're starting to see decriminalization around psilocybin. Oregon just decriminalized all drugs. Um, so we're not at the state of legalization right now, but like when you are talking about something that's been prosecuted against for so long, discriminated against for so long legally, and then trying to make that switch to legalization, like I think there are a lot of lessons that um, psychedelics companies and pioneers and advocates and activists can learn from what has happened with cannabis. Um, So I, I, I do see a connection in that sense. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and at the core level here, we're talking about, you know, freedom and cognitive liberty and the right to, you know, your body, your choice, your soul, your mind, you know, all these things are really important. And, you know, we see what happens when things go underground and the complications that arise and the law and the government and the red tape and the bureaucracy and the this and the that prison populations and the, you know, punishment for excessive punishment and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah. And I think, you know, young guys like ourselves, it's hard to appreciate just how taboo pot was as recently as like the mid 1980s, like, you know, the Nancy Reagan, just say no era. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's easy to kind of, and and I even like kind of address this in the first episode of the syndicate. It's like, a whole series about like pot smuggling, like really pot, like still pot still now, like aren't we past that? it's like, well, actually there's some really important reasons to like still look at um, this gray area between legalization and a still thriving black market. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, that's, yeah. One would think like, oh, it's legal now. So everything's good. Everything's on the up and up. Everything's fine. There's, there would be no reason to, right? But that's not the case um, at, at all, really. Uh, yeah. When you, were, when you were doing the syndicate um, and you were talking to these people, did you ever have any moments where you were kind of scared or intimidated or like, oh, shit, I don't know if I can go here or there? <laughs> um, there were a couple moments, yeah. Um, I had the unique experience of actually skydiving with the main skydiver who was was like moving weed across state lines using his company's skydiving planes. Um, And it was a completely irrational thought. And he he ended up being a very generous and fascinating person to talk to. Um, But don't think it, you know, didn't cross my mind as we were like jumping out of a, out of a plane together that, um, you know, like I was like nosing around all of his personal shit and his story. And like, here I am yeah. in midair with like two little straps, like holding me to and him in gonna... the parachute. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, more, more concertedly though, there was a moment um, where I had been warned by two people not to knock on the door of this, um, former marijuana dealer's house. He was a main distributor for the group up in the Twin Cities. Um, And one person had said like, oh, don't go there. Like uh, his, you know, his nickname is crazy. And like, it's for good reason. 
you know, he could shoot you like who knows what he'll do if you show up. Um, so I knocked on the, I, I had to try. So I went to this guy's house anyway. Um, <laughs> I knocked on his door and he just like immediately beckons me inside, which was like kind of strange. Um, and he's like kind of a awkward, um, like he wasn't anything like what I expected him to look like. He was kind of, he had these like glasses on and a plaid shirt and kind of looked like a nerdy college professor. Um, and he's like awkwardly fussing with stuff in his sink and is like clearly nervous. I'm there. And then like, we're talking about um, his family. And he mentions that like his grandfather was the bootlegger. And so I was like, oh, okay, so smuggling runs in the family. And he's like, all of a sudden like wants me to come down into his basement. He's like, Oh, come to the basement. I want to show you something. And so we're going down these like really dark creaky narrow stairs. And there's for some reason, like power tools that are like on some of the stairs, like there's this um, saw and there was like a hammer and like, it's just like looking very like the setup for a horror movie. Um, And then he just like disappears into the dark, into the basement and I'm like following him down there and yeah, you can bet your ass that like my heart was almost beating out of its chest at that moment. Jesus Christ. So he, finally, wow. he finally flicks on the light and goes over this cabinet and it's like all of these old whiskey bottles that his grandfather had bootlegged that he wanted to show me. Um, so yeah, that, that was another moment where I was, I was a little nervous and you know, with all these situations and any story that you're doing, I guess it's, you know, even kind of like hearkening back to backcountry skiing and looking at the slope and how stable it is. Like there's, there's the knowledge that you have about the people you're interacting with in the story. And then there's also kind of like a gut feeling. Like I've had situations where it's like, I'm in a dangerous situation. I need to get out of here right now. And then there's other times where like even going into this guy's basement, I was like, I'm a little scared and like, this is a little sketchy, but it's also not like so sketchy that I'm not going to go through with it. Mm. Yeah. Wow. That's intense. <laughs> yeah. It, it can be. Yeah. <laughs> so you might, you might, you, you have a lot of good stories and you know, you've published a lot of good stories and the, and you know, in written and in podcast form. Oh, looks like I'm breaking up a little bit here. Yeah. So you have a lot of good stories in written and um, in podcast form. Now, what are some stories maybe that that you have that, that are untold that, that are, you know, maybe, uh, I don't know. I don't want to say like, Hey, like let's, uh, let's, let's get into like a secret story now and blow the whistle on something. But, but like, uh, yeah, is there, is there, are there any, are there any things that maybe that you were like, wow, this is a really good story, but for whatever reason, I, I you know, I, I can't, I don't know if I could tell it right now or. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a couple that, you know, I can like vaguely refer to. <laughs> um, I mean, you usually like I will go through and report a story if it's, if I have the sources. And so sometimes sometimes the reason like you can't report something is like you have to wait in the case of the syndicate, for instance, like had to wait for the right time for 
the state to turn over stuff for law enforcement to talk to me for, um, I mean, it even helped that the statute of limitations had passed for a lot of the crimes that, um, members of this group were accused of, or, you know, had carried out according to the law. Um, so it turned out to be a good thing that I waited like four years to interview them because, um, they could admit to things and not, worry about being prosecuted for them since the statute of limitations was was up um other times you just like find out something from one person who you absolutely believe but maybe they don't go they weren't aren't willing to go on the record and you just have a hard time like finding anyone else that can confirm that um so there's one story like that that's um actually music related to go full circle um there there's like a there's there's a figure in japan who was who became a bit of a celebrity after his death like vincent van gogh status you know like famous after he died um and everyone thinks that he died in an accident um but he did not I know for a fact. Um, I'm not really going to say more about that story, but it's like, it's an incredible story that like I've just been holding out for years that um, would be of real interest to both Japanese audiences and American audiences. um, And, and really gets into a lot of questions about like legacy and deceit because there's a lot of lies around his story and like cover ups. Um, Wow. So that's that's one I'm hoping to get to someday. Um, All right. Well, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Little teaser on that. Yeah. Yeah, that's going to be tricky like, you know, oh, I can't I can't talk about this yet or I can't talk about that yet and especially when it comes to <laughs> I mean, I guess this is what separates again to go full circle. Like this is what separates like the the fact-telling journalists from just the opinion speaking assholes that don't have sources or just like, yeah, this is probably true. Um, like, I mean, for me, for example, like I could come, I could say anything and, and, uh, no one's holding my feet to the fire or whatever, really. But, uh, but then, you know, who knows if it's true or not. So you do have these, like these safeguards in place to really just make sure like, all right, is this really accurate? Like, is this really what's going on here? Even if it is this like compelling story that you really want to tell, maybe Mm. you can't put it forth yet because it's just not totally all legit, like in terms of like source coming forward and stuff. Totally. Yeah. I mean, and I'll say too that the real unsung heroes are like the local, your local journalists and your local journalists who are on the city hall beat, on the education beat, who are day in, day out, like writing stories, um, informing your community about what's going on and actually like doing fact-based reporting. And it kind of trickles up. So um, like the New York, like national mag or national newspapers, like the New York times and Washington post do a lot of great original reporting and like do stories that no one else has. They also leech a ton off local journalists and you know, it, and it, it can be maddening if you're in this business too, if you have an amazing find or like exposed corruption or um, figure out that, 
you know, a prominent business leader is, I don't know, like sexually harassing people or like your sheriff's department in your town is corrupt and, you know, abusing immigrants or whatever it is. And then, and then it will like, you know, of course someone will see it in the New York times and that story will get like a hundred times more attention than your local story ever did. Um, but yeah, those, the, the people for local working for local news organizations are really the unsung heroes. Um, yeah, yeah it trickles, yeah. trickles up to the national newspapers. And then, um, you know, so a lot of times people like me even kind of leech off that, um, and expand on reporting that's done in like short factual news stories. Um, and then just like expand that story out, uh, which is like kind of like what I did with the syndicate. Yeah, amazing. I'm really happy you said that. Give credit to those the the local journalists that are doing that work. It reminds me of uh, Dark Alliance by Gary Webb. Are you familiar with that that work? Uh, yeah, with the whole um, yeah. I mean, what a tragic story with what happened to him. But yeah, I mean, exposing the whole like um, drug gun pipeline going down to central and south america iran contra yeah amazing right and he was part of this local little paper and and people were like you know trying to discredit him for being part of you know he's like just this rinky dinky little local journalist you know he's what san what jose yeah san yeah. jose mercury right but it with with passion and with with uh with drive and and he was able to you know really you know uncover some some crazy shit yeah yeah. Well, Chris, thanks for taking the time to, uh, to sit down with me and, and to chat a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your work and a little bit about the, the syndicate. And uh, for people um, wanting to go check that out, I highly recommend going to check it out. It's on what? Every podcast platform, right? Yep. Every podcast platform, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, Google. Um, yeah. Just search the syndicate and the, the thumbnail is a smoke plume. So you should be able to spot it that way. Awesome. Awesome. Anything else, anything else people should know or where to send them, where to go, what to do, what not to do, <laughs> what to eat for dinner tonight. <laughs> um, well, if you're still working on Thanksgiving leftovers, you should probably get those out of the way. Um, yeah. Uh, you can find my website at Chris Allen Walker and Allen is spelled a L L a N Chris Allen Walker.com. And, um, it has a collection of my favorite stories and, and many of the ones that we'd been talking about in this interview. So that's a way that you can kind of find all my stuff. Amazing. Awesome. Well, go check that out folks and uh, go and listen to the syndicate. You will not be disappointed. Uh, go check that out. And I'm going to finish the, well, well, we'll, we'll see what I can get through because I'm currently right now rewatching the Sopranos. Mm. So I got another crime drama on my hands, but, uh, but yeah, I'm looking forward to episode two and the rest. And thank you so much, Chris Walker for being on and till next time. Peace. Thanks for having me on. Hey, hope you guys enjoyed that podcast as much as I did. For more podcasts, go check out the archive. Go scroll down. All the episodes are free, free, free. Go check out some of the episodes I did in the past. I interviewed J.P. Sears in 2017. I talked with New York Times bestselling author John Perkins, uh, writer of the uh, 
award-winning book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. I spoke with uh, Jason Bassler of the Free Thought Project. I told my ayahuasca story the first time that I went down to Peru drinking ayahuasca. So if you're wondering what podcast to listen to, I did an awesome one with East Forest recently as well. If you're wondering what podcast to check out to listen to, go back in the archives and check out some things that you might have missed. I guarantee you'll find something there appealing. And um, go to sheathunderwear.com, get some underwear, try sheath underwear. I know you're going to like it and uh, you're going to love it. I love them very much. Put in the promo code Mikeadelic for 20% off. Go to Mushroom Revival and get 15% off at Mushroom Revival, all mushroom products. And consider becoming a patron. We're, we're developing a nice community over there. Come join, be a patron. $5 a month, it's like 10 cents a day, and you get access to bonus episodes. And we're connecting people from all around the world, so people are talking and sharing trip reports and stories in the Discord, in the Inner Sanctum chat do that. If you can't do that, just like, share, subscribe, and leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Whatever you do, thanks for your support. Thanks for listening. And uh, go check out Chris's stuff. All the links are in the show description. Till next time, peace.